Welcome to Pollywanna Cracker. I am Tim Baker and I'm here in the electorate office of Federal Labor MP for Wakefield and the Shadow Parliamentary Secretary for Manufacturing, Nick Champion. Welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks so much. <laughs> Thanks for coming out to Manapara. Yeah, it's a bit of a so, trek for me. Um, yeah. I come from the other side of town. so It's the it's a busiest yeah. shopping centre in my electorate, I reckon, and yeah. uh, a lot of people from up the track come here as well because uh, of the very good food land here. Ah, okay. So, yeah, lots of, lots of uh, diversity and choice. Yeah, I, I had a bit of a wander through the shopping centre because I turned the wrong way when I first came in here. Didn't <laughs> see the massive Nick Champion signs <laughs> on the building. Yeah, um, it gets lost in the Red Rooster store, <laughs> store so, and uh, some, uh, some Monday mornings we come out and people have left uh, the odd bit of Red Rooster <laughs> on the road by, yeah. by the house yeah, or by the office here. I want to start by um, saying congratulations because, as I understand, that you and your wife are expecting a baby around indeed, election night. Indeed, well, it's a bit a bit later than that, so okay. it's uh, end of July rather than the start. Okay. But uh, um, there's a sort of a bit of a tradition in Fiona's family, at least, of babies arriving early. So we're kind of right. hoping we're hoping that uh, the two don't coincide and there's a bit of a yeah. gap. But uh, yeah. my first, uh, both our first child, so. Um, and a little girl coming, so it's, oh. it's nice. Found out the we found out because we had the scan sort of late afternoon, and uh, found out that we're having a daughter uh, sort of the night before the International Women's Day breakfast in Gawler. So oh, it was, right. uh, you know, it's a, a, a kind of a moment when you take time to reflect on uh, why we have International Women's yeah. Day, and uh, you know the of course the challenges for uh, women around the world. Yeah, well, I, I myself am expecting uh, a baby. Well, oh, not, nice. not me. Not no, me no, no. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Well, my wife. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she's due around the same time, mid July. Uh, so, all oh, right, yeah. little boy, little girl. Don't well, know. We don't know. Oh, you've gone the don't. That's right. I, I, yeah. I was I was signed up for not knowing, but my, <laughs> Fiona said no. We're, there's enough surprises. Yeah, right. <laughs> without knowing. So. Yeah. See, I was reverse. I wanted to know, but Carla, uh, she just wanted to keep a surprise. So, well, they're the we deciders. Go. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I had no choice. <laughs> and and that's what I should be doing this week. I've taken off from work, and I'm supposed to be working on the baby room. But I've got uh, all these important podcasts like this to record. So. Well, Here see, we could have. Uh, I've just painted. I just took all this joinery out of. Uh, um, we had a little office, or well, the previous owners of my property had a little office. Uh, um, so we took all the joinery out and we've painted it and uh, yeah, turned it into a nursery. So yeah. up in Greenock. So yeah, it's nice. Yeah, we'll compare notes afterwards then. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so the, the campaign is just um, over a week old. So how are you seeing it so far? Well, this is an unusual campaign because it's eight weeks mm. uh, rather than four. And eight weeks, I think, will become... Uh, a, a greater toll as time goes on on candidates uh, and on uh, you know I think there will be a definite uh, dampening effect in retail so I think it's you know it's pretty disastrous for the country to have this sort of turmoil um, but that tells you something about the government they've had turmoil about their budget this week about the backpackers tax they've had turmoil uh, two prime ministers two treasurers um, you know, three defence ministers, 14 other ministerial changes. And, of course, all of that adds to the uncertainty that, that people feel. Um, and, you know, it's an uncertainty as a nation that we have to prevent. Fair enough. Uh, so um, how did you see the first debate last week? Well, obviously, Bill won. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I don't think there's much doubt about that. And uh, much more at home 
talking to voters, sort of much more down to earth. Uh, but I think Bill's been consistently outperforming uh, not just expectations, but the government. We've led the agenda on so many things. And I think that means that, uh, you know, as the campaign goes on, people take a closer and closer look at you if you're a candidate for Prime Minister. Uh, and I think they'll like what they see. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you mentioned just before about Liberal and they've had their, their changes and their controversies. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things in the last couple of days is there are some Labor MPs in other states that aren't really supportive of, uh, I, I believe, the border control. Uh, well, policy. I think what you'll find is a lot of this is historical stuff. So okay. over the prior to being candidates, they've gone to rallies uh, and the like. Um, and what I'd say to that is when you become a Labor candidate, you sign up to Labor's policies, you're bound by them. It's quite clear. Um, uh, you have to vote with the Labor Party. You have to vote with the caucus decisions. You have to mm-hmm. obey national conference. That's with very disciplined show. Uh, and, uh, you know, I guess um, we've got a very clear policy uh, firstly, we will bring more refugees to this country and we're going to lift the uh, refugee intake to 27,000 uh, by 2020. Mm-hmm. And uh, we are going to properly fund the UNHCR as we see it, um, uh, a greater contribution to dealing with refugees uh, in places where they are currently situated. I mean, there's, I think, the millions in uh, Lebanon and, and Jordan at the moment. Those people don't want to actually leave the places of their birth. They'd much rather go home to Syria and rebuild once there is peace there. Um, and there is an urgency to have peace in, in Syria. But while they're in those um, like they're camps, but they're really now little cities, uh, we want them to have appropriate you know, shops, healthcare, schools, so they might re- retain some uh, normalcy in their life and we want to you know, have them processed properly. And lastly, of course, we're uh, committed to offshore processing, which the Rudd government brought in, um, because we want to deter people from taking very dangerous boat journeys. And it's dangerous for them. Um, They don't understand how dangerous it is when they set out. Mm. Uh, You can imagine if you're setting out from Afghanistan or the Middle East, you don't really understand how vast uh, the Indian Ocean is. You don't understand how dangerous and monsoonal the Timor Sea is. Um, and so the first time you actually come to that, that realisation is when you're on a overcrowded, dangerous fishing vessel. Um, and so we want to, you know, we want to deter people from taking that dangerous journey and being vulnerable to the sort of mafioso, you know, the local criminal outfits that run uh, these very profitable people, people trafficking enterprises. Would it be a bit of a deterrent if... It wasn't offshore processing, but somewhere onshore in a slightly... I'm not saying like a five-star hotel, but, you know, if it was in... Well, um, I think the question is, uh, if we have offshore processing, should we treat people humanely and and safely? And we absolutely should. And and the government's record in this regard is appalling. Uh, They actually got rid of... um, There was an independent inspector who was, uh, you know, designed to Mm -hmm. uh, make sure that standards were appropriate. We were going to build proper buildings... For these people to reside in and of course we were going to actually try and resettle them in third countries so for those portion of people who are found to be refugees they should absolutely be resettled in other countries uh, and given every chance to rebuild their lives for the people who aren't refugees and there are a group who, who are 
you know, um, I'm not dim- disparaging them, yeah. but they, they don't fit the UN definition of a refugee. Might be very good people, might have come here to, for a better life, but they don't meet that, uh, that classification. Uh, those people need to return to their, their places of origin. Okay, even despite if they're... You know, fleeing war or something. Well, like uh, if they're fleeing war, they'll be arrest- they'll be classified as a rebel. Okay. Well, there's a very clear UN yeah. uh, declaration on and definition of refugees. If they're fleeing war, if they're fleeing persecution, um, uh, then they'll meet the classification right. of refugee. Uh, some people don't because they're seeking a better life, yeah. but they're not persecuted in their home country. They're just yeah, you know, I'd. I'd I wouldn't want to use the word economic migrants yeah. um, because I don't think that truly tells their story, but they are people who are seeking a better life. Um, and, you know, look, if I lived in Iran or um, some of those other places, I wouldn't want to live there because, you know, they're not um, sort of... Uh, uh, they're not... Their economy was, was you know, under the pressure of sanctions and the like. So you can understand why they come, but mm. they don't meet the definition of a refugee sometimes. Yeah. Okay. It, it, and it's important, I suppose, for people to understand that everybody's assessed individually. Yeah. So if you have a, you know, if you have a boat coming, some people might have, you know, might be uh, Hazaras from Afghanistan, almost certainly refugees because of the terrible treatment of that ethnic minority. Um, but then equally, you might have someone from a completely different circumstance. Uh, who's not? I want to talk a little bit about manufacturing, um, and it's close to you, obviously, being the position that you mm. have. But also, Holden is based in your electorate. Mm. Um, so, with that set to close next year, uh, what is just shed some light on Labor's plan for the manufacturing industry, both locally and nationally? Well, look, I think um, first of all, the, the demise of the car industry is a choice of the government. Um, and we had a terrible trifecta of circumstances. Tony Abbott being prime minister. Um, an investment decision, which was a second pass, mm-hmm. having to be made. The company said, well, this is when the decision comes up, shortly after the election, uh, and a very high Australian dollar. And if you take out any one of those trifecta, you know, that trifecta, you will get a different outcome. So if uh, Kevin Rudd had been Prime Minister, we would still have a car industry. Um, it, it, you know, frankly, if we'd had a more sensible Liberal, if John Howard had been Prime Minister, we would still have a car industry. Uh, because he understood the importance of it. Um, if we had had a lower dollar, if the investment decision wasn't being made at that time, we would still have a, a car industry. So, you know, this was a, um, a government-initiated you know, crisis in manufacturing and it did not need to happen. Um, we're now struggling with what is a very, very um, unplanned exit of a major industry. And it's not just here, because sure, um, Holt's got... They had 1,700, I think they're down to about 1,100 employees now. But those employees, about a third of them live in in Wakefield, but the other third uh, live elsewhere. Uh, And, of course, uh, that third, um, you know, buy local goods here and there. And there are many, many other uh, component companies, which are in the southern suburbs and then uh, Steve Georgianis' electorate. So this is 13,000 jobs out of our whole... Uh, state economy, billions of you know billion dollars worth of um, investment gone, and it spreads so far you wouldn't even um, people wouldn't even understand. So um, I've got hay exporters in my electorate. Right. Now you wouldn't see say, well, what do they have to do with the car industry? But they rely on the 
all of the shipping containers that come in full of car parts right. to assemble cars. So there's a fair, you know, about half of a Commodore, uh, you know, comes from interstate or um, overseas. Uh, it comes in shipping containers. Shipping containers all sit there empty. Well, the hay mill fills them full of hay, right. sends them out. So suddenly you haven't got all these shipping containers sitting around empty. So you have to bring them over from West Australia or from Melbourne probably. Right. So you can, And that adds a cost. So there's all these ramifications of, of the exit of the car industry which are, are unseen until they exit um, and the government's done an appalling job. You ask me what we're going to do. Well, um, we've announced $17.5 million, uh, this week to extend some state government mm-hmm. programs and I was down at a factory yesterday um, which is transitioning out of car manufacturing into defence components. Yeah. Um, and the money they've used to build the facilities and the infrastructure they need to do that came out of these programs. So um, importantly, we're going to extend them out uh, from 2018 to 2020, um, and that's important because you think about when the you know the, the impact of it. 2017 is a close down, so we're really going to see yeah. 2018 before you see people, you know, the redundancy spent. Maybe they haven't got another job or they've finished their training. That's, mm-hmm. that's going to be the critical time. So, mm-hmm. uh, so, you know, there'll be other things we do. Um, and the state government's, you know, announced an expansion of the Ingham's Chickens uh, uh, factory. Food production is obviously food, wine. Yeah. Getting the most out of those industries is going to be uh, critical for us. Uh, and we have to go looking for other industries as well. Yeah, okay. And you touched on... Um uh, the government's role uh, in that. And Bill Shorten was here recently and in the advertiser, uh, and I quote here, he said, uh, the Liberals go to the car industry into closing down and deserting Australia, leaving Adelaide facing high unemployment and social dislocation, mm. end quote. So do you and Labor have a plan or have you presented a plan for the Holden site once it's closed down? Like, Could that space be used for yeah, so the, the next uh, thing? Uh, well, so the site is owned by Holden's and okay. um, uh, there will be a significant cleaning up because it's an industrial site. Yeah. Um, and, of course, the practices of the 60s and the 70s weren't yeah. um, as environmentally <laughs> friendly as, as the ones we've got now. So there will be some significant negotiations between Holden and the state government, which is okay. the responsible area of government about... Um, you know, what goes on in that site. It's a very large site and it's got some complexities to it. There'll be a lot of, I think, um, there'll be a few black swan ideas out there about it and a few white knight proposals about Mm it. Um, I think we have to be careful about all of that, um, the the public discourse about it. A lot of this, I've talked to Holden um, uh, numerous times about um, uh, my anxiety to see the site used, to not see it shut it up yeah. uh, for years on end um, and I know the state government uh, the Premier's just been to Detroit and a few other things mm-hmm. have some discussions with them about that uh, it, it's, I, I suppose it's such a large site that it does lend itself to uh, a variety of uses yeah. and I guess we've just got to make sure that we're methodical about getting the right yeah. you know the right set of circumstances and I don't necessarily think we don't want to delay forever and have the site empty but you wouldn't want to rush into into your outcome either because um, in Tonsley's case they've looked at it quite carefully and methodically and you can see something reasonably special going on down there mm-hmm. um, and I guess you know there are some opportunities there for us to you know um, look at what we do with that site. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you certainly don't want it to become another Lacornu site like we've had no, here in no, South no. Australia. No, um, no. So yeah, yeah. I don't think we want inaction, but mm. I don't think we want – we don't want to have a, a sort of blind rush. Yeah. Uh, we don't want to be desperate about it. Um, it's critical that we're not. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've got to get it right, and I, I think there are there's a lot of potential for that space, mm. and whether it's for, you know, work towards renewables or, you know, some – I don't know. I don't know if maybe education like well, that. Well, they've done it times. Look, I don't know. In, interesting enough, I mean, I think there'll be a, a remarkable. I, I don't. Apart from the Holden site, I think. Look, there's a lot of industrial land out here. Uh, Edinburgh Parks. Um, uh, there's there's big intermodal. Um, uh, there's rail line and the electorate. Mm-hmm. Two big intermodals on that on that site. Transport intermodals. So there is real opportunities for uh, new manufacturing. Uh, to come in for, uh, for us to do things like medical instruments. Um, you know, I've come across since I've been in this portfolio, uh, you know, in Melbourne there's a big factory that makes dental fillings, which are perfect for Australia. High value. Yeah. Freight's not an issue because they're so small. Um, and it's a growing industry, a growing business. And uh, the owner of the, the, the company was telling me about... Uh, that there's this massive dentist convention in Berlin every year. 8,000 dentists go. Yeah, right. And so, you, you know, those are the sorts of products, high skill, high wage, um, you know, freight's not such an issue. They're the ones that where, you know, our skills, our intellect, that's the area we need to get into. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, this might be a question for um, the mental health minister or shadow minister, but in the northern suburbs of Adelaide, you know, it's been reported... It feels like forever, but yeah. about the jobless rate and people maybe turning to theft and alcohol and drugs and that sort of thing, which leads to many other mm. issues. Um, and that's exacerbated by, you know, jobs lost at Holden and that closure coming up. So uh, it's not exactly a, a, a new story, that, but um, is it plans or has there been any conversations about um, what you or Labor could do to help those people in those positions? Well, I think that's a... a a sort of an old problem, yeah. Um, and it actually was born of, um, you know, some of the economic dislocation that happened around when I came out of school, nineteen eighty nine. Very big shakeout yeah. of uh, tariff based industries. Um, you know, Levi. We used to have Levi's here. A lot of clothing, and lo- actually, much more textile and clothing than than, than other industries. Um, and of course, there used to be little employment offices. So when I came out of school, there was an employment office still at Holden's. Um, you went in the door at the front of the factory, you applied. Um, a few of my mates got jobs there. A few of them got jobs at the wineries. Same way, you walked in. There used to be the front of Penfolds. Used to be an employment yeah. office. So there was a very clear. You knew how to get a. You knew if you wanted a job, how to kind of get one. You walked through that door. You signed the forms. If you were lucky, they took you back for a medical. Um, Same with G.H. Michelle. Did the same thing myself. Um, So, you know, that's the way you got a job in the manufacturing area. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's less clear for a lot of families that have been jobless for sometimes a generation. It's much much harder. Um, So you apply online. You have to have a white card. Um, There's higher skills needed, um, often, you know, year 12. Um, and sometimes there's, there's postcode discrimination as well. So there's a lot of barriers um, to employment and there'll be a lot of people out there who say, oh, you know, there's easy answers. Actually, it's a really complex, difficult problem 
Um, and so one of the things that we found did work um, were jobs linked to so pre-employment uh, training uh, that was linked. So Holden's actually ran something for long-term unemployed people um, a few years back. Um, they had 200 applicants. They ended up taking 50 people in the end. This was when um, you know things were going well. Yeah. Um, but there was a pre-employment program before 13 weeks. So if you got through it, you, you got a job. So um, and Woolworths have run similar schemes for Indigenous people. Um, and so what it seems like is that the, the big issue, I think, with coming out of unemployment and into a job is that it can be pretty bewildering. Mm. Um, often, you know, working all day can be physically hard, particularly if you go to retail or a factory or a packing shed. It's tough physical work. I can tell you I did it once upon a time many moons back. Um, and so there's that sort of initial physical shock. Uh, there's also the, you know, um, if you work in an office, it's pretty easy. If you work in one of these other environments, it's actually pretty, you know, they're, they're fast-moving, fast-paced environments, a lot of actual technical, um, you know, technical and um, physical challenges. So you have to get people ready for that. You can't just go, you know, um, can't just go out of your house one day or out of school one day and into one of these very dynamic environments. Some people can, but other people need a bit of help. So that, you know, those sorts of pre-employment, work hardening, getting people, you know, familiar with it, mm-hmm. seem to have the most um, uh, success at uh, not just getting people jobs, but getting them kind of in that frame of mind where they're confident enough to kind of do it. So um, I think those had a lot of virtue to them. Um, and I think some of the other things that we did when we were in government is we built facilities down at the Northern Sound System, putting millions of dollars at the time, uh, to build areas where, um, so you've got everybody down at the Northern Sound System, kids go to the skate park out the front, or young people, I shouldn't say kids, <laughs> teenagers go to the uh, skate park out the front, they often come in and do very creative music and all the rest of the good uh, um, DJs down there. Yep. But we've also got the employment providers there. So it's a, it's a space which, you know, um, is, again, there's a natural kind of segue from yeah. what they're doing and enjoying and going to the, see the, the, you know, boys down there and a few other employment providers service to, uh, to youth, um, SYC, um, are there and... Um, those sorts of facilities, so you're not going to some, you know, impersonal office somewhere, you know, or, you know, some office block. Yeah. Uh, you know, keeping it local, keeping it familiar, I think has a lot of virtue. And the other thing we did, we had wraparound services. So if you're long-term unemployed, you know, what sometimes happens, you've got other issues that might stop you getting employed. Um, and what used to happen is you go to Centrelink and they go, oh, well, off you go, you've got problem X, off you go down to, you know, see this specialist provider or go see the GP or yeah. whatever. Um, and, of course, people don't want to, I mean, it's human nature, you don't want to go into an office and say, oh, I've got a drug alcohol problem or I've got a problem with my teeth, you know, dental problem or I've got a, you know, health problem. You just, you know, people just don't, that's not the way human beings operate. Um, often, you know, personal liberty issues or pride 
you know, we, you can understand how that can be an issue. So we brought the services in to see people mm-hmm. and that was actually very successful. Um, one of the things that, one of the shocking statistics is um, the amount of Medicare rebates some of these repeat people were receiving went dramatically up, doubled. So sometimes we're just giving people basic health care, access right. to things that people would take for granted uh, because they've been... You know, if you're on unemployment benefits for a long time, sometimes that can have dramatic effects on your health, on your, uh, on your, um, on on your sort of the way you see yourself, um, and giving those services, bringing those services to people, can often just give them the boost to you know um, be able to rebuild uh, their role as a citizen and and get employ- hopefully get employment. But and so it all links in together. Um, uh, and one of the other things that we had is Centrelink went out to uh, the Peachy Belt, set themselves up on the community centre. Actually, by going out to the area, uh, which at that time had the worst unemployment, but, um, you know, it's not Robbins and Caruso, I'm not picking it because it's a bad area or anything, but they found that actually being present in the community meant that people viewed them differently too. So it had a very, very positive um, cycle of effects. So it's, a, you know, these things are not new. I said them in my first speech to Parliament and it's a constant, you know, um, I guess uh, you have to be very, very predictable and constant about your social programs for a long time for to see them have an effect. Yeah. Um, and while I, you know, don't want to dispel hope or anything like that because I am hopeful about people's, you know, people can often, one of the proudest moments I've had, we had a, Jobs Expo and uh, down at the Playford Civic Centre. And they direct mailed everybody who, who was unemployed on the, on the list. And, you know, you're never sure how things are going to go. But when I got, I got there early, I thought, oh, I'll go and have a look around. And there was a line-up. And not a, not a small line-up, like a big line-up. And that tells you that people want to work. You know, I like this sort of story that people don't want to work or anything. It was a lineup. Um, you know, it's like the like a lineup to get to the show or something. And when you got in there, there were all these employers, sort of around the time of the GFC. There was an old-fashioned jobs board, and it was harking back, I think, to that time when you had the employment office at at the factory. People knew where to go, yeah. and they knew the employers were going to be there, and people were having conversations. And quite a few jobs came out of you know just by putting people in the same place, you know, the employer could see that people were kind of willing to show up and, and present themselves and the person who was looking for work suddenly got the sense that there might actually be a job there for them. So I think, um, you know, jobs expos, uh, we had employment coordinators at the time which were focused on these areas, um, very important during the closure of Bridgestone. Uh, those are the things that government can do to just you know, make a difference. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I mean, job expos aren't anything new, but, yeah, do you feel that perhaps going forward there needs to be more of these types of events where employers and job seekers can come together and at least interact? Yeah. So you get a sense for who these people are, they get a sense for who the employers are because at the end of the day it's about people as, mm. as well. You know? Well, um, look, I think you say they're not new, but they were certainly new. I think we were the first government to do them. Oh, yes. And, well, and, and they've stopped since then. Yeah, um, I meant they're not new now. But no, yeah, that's yeah. right. But the, but the concept's good. Yeah. So why wouldn't you do those things? And um, hope's an important thing. Putting people together is, you know, that personal interaction. I think 
the internet is very good for many things, but if you're um, if you left school in the sixties, mm. right, fifteen, you could easily get a job. Just went down to you, yeah. you know, you presented if you presented enough factory offices, someone would give you a go. My dad was just telling me about that the other day. Indeed, <laughs> indeed, right, and and it was many people look back on it as a sort of a, a golden era because you mm. could find employment. Um, and I think now it's a lot more difficult. Uh, if you leave school, uh, you know, and you've got a learning dis- difficulty, even though you might physically want to work and you might be good at work and you might actually be quite smart, um, but if you've got dyslexia or something, undiagnosed problem, how do you get a white card? Mm. Right? H- how do you get work in construction? Yeah. You can't get a white card. You know, like you... We've got to overcome some of some of the technologies separated us, separated some people from the from the labour market. And the only answer to that, you can't say, oh well, we won't have white cards because we want people to be safe on yeah. on site. But we need to be able to. Have, that's where government comes in as as the bridge to provide programs that that would that would do that. So, um, not every program is successful. We don't want training for training's sake or anything yeah. like that. Um, uh, but what we do want to do is give people that first entry, and there there are plenty of um, you know there are plenty of examples uh, of where where that's happened. Right. Um, let's talk about penalty rates. They've been in the sure. news a little bit sure. this week, and I was going to ask you um, uh, a little bit about that. But there's a big sign as you walk into your office that says "I support penalty rates." Yeah, I didn't want to leave anybody with any doubt. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that was partly what I was going to ask you. So, in your role, you're obviously going to um, keep campaigning to keep penalty rates Indeed. for people. Yeah, because some of the reports this week suggest that Labor hasn't necessarily well, it's, committed it's to that. It's important to be clear about this. And I look, I joined the Labor Party because I was a cleaner, and uh, I didn't get paid my penalty rates. So, you know, that's. Um, uh, and the, you know, my supervisor said, "Oh, don't join a union, get the sack." And later on, I was working for the same company, but as a trolley collector, and uh, that's how I ended up in the shop assistance union. And you know, the, uh, everything else is history, I guess. But very important part of people's, uh, you know, if you if you're a cleaner, if you're a retail worker, if you work in a cafe, I mean, this is not academic stuff. This is your income, and it makes the difference of you know between. Uh, uh, for us as a nation, for the individual, it makes a difference between, you know, getting by that week. But as a country, it's the difference between being, you know, having a proper economy where people have a dignified existence and having a car wash economy where people are treated, you know, more or less as sort of, you know, economic chattel, which mm-hmm. can be, you know, used and abused. And there, there are terrible equity problems now in, in the United Kingdom and the United States well, you just have this army of working poor people who can never get ahead. Like, you know, no matter how hard they work, they can't get ahead, they can't break out. And and that is what we, that that is the real, behind penalty rates, penalty rates are an important thing, but behind it, that's the great national challenge. So uh, we don't want to end up with a car wash economy where some people can't afford to, you know, break into the middle class. We want an economy with social mobility uh, and where, um, uh, you know, every retail establishment sells a lot of coffee and sells a lot of food because there are people with wages in their pocket. And while cutting penalty rates might work for one cafe, if every cafe does it, then there's less money s- swimming around the economy. Uh, and the minute you do that, you, demand goes. 
And so you lock yourself into the low-wage cycle. Right. That's a great challenge before us, Yeah, is okay. to avoid that, you know, the, the, the tip economy which they have in the US. I see. Okay. So, um, so is that then suggesting that Labor will... Well, I'll, you, oh, well, I'll, tell, I'll tell you the, the mechanism by which we have avoided this very problem. So for 100 years, uh, Labor stood for arbitration. We are one of the few countries in the world which has a constitution with the arbitration and conciliation power in it. So in the constitution, there's a, there's a clause that says bosses just can't go out and set their own rates of pay. There will be a system of arbitration and conciliation and the federal government will have the power to do it. They had to put it in the Constitution because workers wouldn't vote for federation without it. And they had a couple of federation referendums and that was what they put in there to get workers' votes. John Howard tried to kind of turn the nations back on that with work choices. And guess what happened? Out he went. So this is something, this is not a new battle for anybody who's looked at the Labor movement's history from the 1890s to now. It's the same same continuum, and we've always used the Industrial Relations Commission, or the now the Fair Work Commission, as a mechanism to decide people's awards, their holidays, leave loading, penalty rates, and it's always been a, a fair system for workers because what people, what the Commission does is they look at all the economic evidence, they look at what people need to live, they, look, they balance all these concerns, and most importantly, they take submissions from the government and we are the first opposition in history to ever put a submission in. And it's not a letter, it's a submission, right? It's a submission that you put in. And particularly when you're in government, you've got the full weight of the Treasury and every other department. You put the submission in um, and, you know, you're not telling the Commission how to suck eggs, but you're indicating the government's views on these weighty economic matters. And so it's taken seriously. And this idea, right, that we should go around the place legislating for it would be a recipe for disaster because the Greens say, oh, well, we're going to stand up and beat their chest about how they're going to legislate for it. But what's more likely, Adam Bant legislating for it or the Liberal Party legislating for it? As the Liberal Party legislate, they do what they did in work choices, which is zero penalty rates. That's, what, that's where they'll go. And we've already had Nick Xenophon in the Senate introduce, to, you know, introduce a bill to remove penalty rates for two groups of workers. Retail workers and hospitality workers. Mm. Now, he said, now says it's a mistake. But that's a, that's a mistake that could have affected 100, over 100,000 workers in the state. That's how many people work in retail and hospitality. It's a huge workforce. So, um, you know, Labor is doing what we have done for 100 years, which is protect people's wages and conditions, and we are the envy of the world. Compared to everywhere else... You know, this is a good country to be a retail worker in, a good country. Because in, in the UK, you can be on the minimum wage, which is, you know, and at one point, before Blair put the minimum wage in, there was no minimum wage. So you got what the boss gave you, mm. right? Yeah. I mean, what the boss gives you, I can tell you, sometimes isn't very much. And I saw that with trolley collectors. When trolley collectors became award-free... All right, they went from 12 bucks an hour to 5 bucks an hour. Right. That's the difference between that type of economy. So, um, you know, people want to sort of speculate about these things. I take a very long view on them. And the long view is you better every day of the week, if you are a, 
if you're the working man or woman, if you're cleaning offices or driving trucks or working in a shop as a night filler, you are better every day of the week having the Fair Work Commission or the Industrial Relations Commission decide what is the fair minimum wage, the fair amount of holidays. Um, this is a, you know, a, a still a great country for workers. Doesn't mean we can't do better, but it beats the hell out of the American economy or the conditions they've got in the UK. Okay, well, it's uh, we're almost time's up. We haven't even really got to some of the other stuff I was going to ask well, you about. Well, you have to come back. I might have you know, to. Have to Norm- come back. Normally with these things, you know, there's a bit of a get to know you as well and yeah, find out a little yeah, bit about who yeah. you are too, but um, yeah. we'll definitely I'm, be I'm back. I'm far more ideological, you know. I just like to, I like to talk about public policy. I think it's mm-hmm. important. Um, and um, I guess I could have talked to you about how I was a cleaner or a fruit picker <laughs> um, or an industrial hose salesman. I was the world's worst industrial hose salesman. But um, all of those, all the lessons I learned when I worked minimum wage are the reasons why I was a union official and the reasons why I stood for public office. And that's why every election when these industrial relations come up, issues come up, they're good issues for us to discuss. Okay, well, thank you for your time today and uh, enjoy your lunch. Thanks. <laughs>